4: Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Veterans Day, it was on the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. And this fellow who ran a church in Detroit that Louise and I used to attend, and I ended up getting ordained in and being the pastor of for two years in downtown Detroit, 456 Ledyard Street was where it was. It was the uh, Coptic temple. It's the Coptic Christian church, the Egyptian Christian church. And he was obsessed with 11:11. 11, 11, 11, you know, the, November 11th at 11 a.m. In fact, the armistice was signed. These guys, I mean, they were so into numerology or whatever. I don't know. But the armistice was signed on November 11th at 11, 11 a.m., at 11 minutes and 11 seconds after the 11th hour. And so having heard all about this for years from Kurt Stanley, Louise and I got married on November 11th at 11, 11 a.m. in that church in Detroit. And so, you know, it's, it's <laughs> a significant day for us too, but it's also the day that we remember these sacrifices that were made by our veterans. And Donald Trump was apparently afraid of getting his hair wet. And I suppose, you know, if his entire head is actually bald the way that his daughter has described it, and everything is a giant comb-over around it, and it's all held in place with a half a can of hairspray, I suppose you can understand why he would be afraid of the rain. It wasn't that he was afraid that he would melt, although, you know, who knows, but that his hair would. So he didn't go out and honor 2,000 American soldiers who died in this place in France. And it appears that the only decent conversation he had with anybody while he was there was with Putin. Sean, my producer, posted on Facebook a picture of her dad, handsome-looking guy. And uh, it says, My father was a World War II veteran, wounded twice and went back to battle as soon as he was able to fight for the rights of the free world. We didn't always see eye to eye on politics, but today I'm standing up for his memory. He slogged through rain, mud, snow, and ice, and often the blood of his brothers in arms. He parachuted out of planes behind enemy lines while being shot at. He thankfully made it home, but died young as a result of his wartime wounds. Many others did not come home and rest in cemeteries in Europe. We have a, quote, leader who insults women, children, Muslims, Jews, asylum seekers, and today he insulted vets. He never served in any branch of the service, and he owes a huge debt of gratitude to all who didn't and to those who do today. He skipped a visit to the Ainsmerne, I'm mispronouncing, I'm sure it's French, American cemetery in France where many World War I vets are buried. Why? It was raining. After Twitter erupted in protest, he visited another American cemetery for the photo op. After all, images, everything. Shame on you, 45. I love you, Dad. I'm proud of you. Brilliant post, Sean. Well done. Churchill's grandson also weighed in. So, Sean, you're in really good company. This is uh, Nicholas Soames. He says, they died with their face to the foe, and that pathetic, inadequate, at-real Donald Trump can't even defy the weather to pay his respects to the fallen. Hashtag, he is not fit to represent this great country. Wow. And, you know, thumbs up from Putin. This uh, Julia Borger over at The Guardian writing, in a way, the U.S. president had come to France by mistake. (laughs) Turns out, you know, when the military told Trump he couldn't have his parade He said, you know, okay, screw it. I'll go to France. They do parades really well. And he was expecting there to be a parade. There was no parade because the French have a parade for Bastille Day, but not for Armistice Day. There were no tanks, no marching bands. And so he sat in his Paris hotel room and, you know, watched Fox News and tweeted rather than going to this cemetery where 2000 Marines were buried after being killed in the neighborhood. In France, on Veterans Day weekend, it came across to the French. It came across as a snub to America's war dead by a president who had avoided military service in Vietnam, claiming to suffer from bone spurs. And so what does Trump do in memory of Veterans Day? He tweets out, must go with election night. He says, large numbers of new ballots showed up out of nowhere. Many ballots are missing or forged. Well, the latter part is a complete lie. There's no evidence of any missing or forged ballots. But there are ballots still showing up because overseas voters, that is to say our military serving overseas, as long as their ballots arrive by November 16th, the law requires them to be counted. This 10-day tend- extension exists for overseas voters. And that's our military. So Donald Trump says the Florida election should be called in favor of Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis and that large numbers of new ballots showed up out of nowhere and many ballots are missing. A forged honest vote count is no longer possible. Ballots massively infected Busco with election night. In other words, let's ignore the votes of our veterans. Bizarre. Just absolutely bizarre. November 11th was the day, you know, the anniversary of the armistice that ended World War I, as a, you know, as I opened the show with, as I mentioned. But the day that it's celebrated in the United States is Monday. And most of Washington, D.C. is kind of shut down. You know, federal offices don't open and that kind of thing. It's not so much, you know, a business holiday around the country, but it's traditionally in Washington, D.C. on November 11th, the president of the United States goes to Arlington Cemetery and lays a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier. Donald Trump just notified the world or the White House just notified the world that Donald Trump is not leaving the White House. He's just going to hang out in the White House and uh, watch Fox News. That's it. And I mean, this is like, this is what we've got. He's not going to honor our veterans. He only uses the military as props for photo opportunities. That's it. I mean, he's got 5,000 U.S. soldiers down on the Mexican border, and they're living in tents that don't have electricity. You know, they've got to you know stand in line to charge their cell phones, and they're going to be away from their families for Thanksgiving, all so that Trump could scare the bejeezes out of us before the election, or at least scare the bejeezes out of the poor people who watch Fox News before the election, another stunt, right? It's just, I mean, this is insane. There's a bunch of things that I wanted to talk about today and welcome your thoughts on as well. The number one, could Beto O'Rourke be our next president? You know, I said a couple of weeks ago that he could be the next John Kennedy or the next Bill Clinton, you know, the young Democrat who kind of comes out of nowhere and for that matter, Jimmy Carter, too number one. So we'll get into that. I'm curious your thoughts on that. And I was on Fox News yesterday. We'll play a little clip from that. But basically, I said that the grifter president has appointed a grifter as attorney general. And the guy debating me was like, huh? In fact, actually, what he said to the host, to Leland, he said, where'd you get this guy? (laughs) Right. But California right now is on fire. And this is the face of climate change. And the question, I think, that we all need to ask, is Trump denying climate change, is his denial of climate change, is that why he's erroneously, inaccurately tweeting that it's bad forest management in California, that cities are on fire? It's got nothing to do with forest management, number one. He's threatening to cut California's federal funding, which is just nuts. And only about 2% of what's on fire is actually, and has been on fire, is actually state-owned land. I mean, most of the forests that are government-owned are federal lands that Trump is theoretically in charge of. So, you know, what's going on with that? There's a lot going on. Let me talk about Beto O'Rourke for a minute. And I think that this is fascinating. Or a Daily Kos, and I'm sorry, I don't have the uh, name of the person who wrote this, because when you print out a Daily Coase story, the, for some reason, the name doesn't actually go with it. But pointing out, you know, Bill Clinton in 92, he had been a governor, but he was still an unknown. I would add Jimmy Carter to this. He was the governor of Georgia. Nobody knew who he was. He came out of nowhere and became president. Barack Obama had only been a senator for three years. He'd served in the Illinois State Senate for a couple of years. I'm not sure how long. But, you know, basically at the federal level, he'd only been out there for three years. John Kennedy was only 42 years old when he was nominated in 1960. Beto O'Rourke, I believe, is older than that. He was born in 72. Yeah, so that would make him older than that. So, you know, he's older than John Kennedy. He was elected to the House of Representatives in 2012. He represented Texas's 16th congressional district since 2013, obviously. Dropped out of the race this time to run for the U.S. Senate and damn near won. I mean, he was within three points. 2.6 points is the margin of victory for slimy Ted Cruz. So it's like this guy, he had a music career. He had a business career from 1995 to 2005. But his first elected official position was in 2005 to 2011. He was on the El Paso City Council. And then from there, he went to the U.S. House of Representatives and did very, very well. And he ran for the Senate, nearly took down Ted Cruz in Texas with massive amounts of money coming in to support Cruz. I mean, massive amounts of out-of-state money, in-state money. So we're going to talk about that. Melinda, watching Free Speech TV in Albuquerque, or in Abiquiu, New Mexico. Okay, hey, Melinda, what's up? Abiquiu.
1: Good morning. I'm uh, calling about uh, Bernie Sanders and Beto Mm O'Rourke. They would be my choice. I like that idea as a team. I'm all for a person of color, women. Elizabeth Warren would also be good. The reason I chose these two white guys is because I think right now I've been watching, and the pundits and I'm starting to already hear all this. Oh, we have to. The Democrats have to tack to the center, and I think if they do that, they're going to lose. Oh yeah. Uh, they're going to lose a bunch of us again, and they're already at it. The well, ever since Bill Clinton started
4: I, this in '92, you've you've seen the Democratic Party just get wiped out all across the nation.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of like, oh, hello, Uh, you guys ever catch on? And and I've heard that they really are more interested in hanging on to power the donors than they are in winning. I hope that's not true. But the reason I'm choosing these two guys or Elizabeth, is that they have have uncompromisingly uh, stuck to the message that people want to hear, which is about our issues, about what's hurting us and killing us, and, and about climate change. If there's not somebody in there who really, really hits it hard about climate change, the New Green Deal... I think that healthcare and jobs and all that become mute after not too long in yeah. our lifetime, maybe because the climate is really upset, yeah, the climate is really going to take us down, and it's kind of like you know everybody's just oh yeah let's you know it's becoming somewhat important but not as important as it needs to be. I mean this is urgent, and I believe that Beto and ernie and or or Elizabeth would uh, really bring that home. And Bernie, more than anyone, and you've been a part of it, too. You had Bernie on your show. I used to watch Brunch with Bernie. But Bernie, more than anyone, has has transformed the conversation of this country. And I believe that he had a huge appeal to young people. Beto has a huge appeal to young people. They both pulled off a miracle against all odds, and I think those guys could do it again.
4: Yeah, I, I agree. But we have to leave it to the primary process to figure out what's going to go on. Sure. But I think that sure. Beto O'Rourke, you know, setting aside Bernie, I think that right now Beto O'Rourke is if he doesn't run for president, he's probably going to be one of the very top vice presidential picks for whoever. Uh, ends up being the, the party's nominee. Because uh, this guy knows how to campaign. He's passionate. He wakes people up. He would give some regional balance to a ticket. I mean, if you had Kamala Harris, she's from California. Uh, Cory Booker is from New Jersey. Elizabeth Warren's from Massachusetts. These are the leading names for president of the Democratic side. Hillary Clinton's from New York. It's all, you know, on the coasts. Texas is yes. in the south, it's in the center of the country. I mean, this is why JFK put LBJ on the ticket. Was he, you know, he needed a Southerner on the ticket in order to get the Southern vote.
1: Let let me ask you a quick question. Who can you honestly think of this declared or the thinking mm. about it that we're all looking at? Who can you think of besides Bernie that you would absolutely trust to not go corporate, not go
4: center? Elizabeth Warren. In a Elizabeth
1: Lawrence yeah yeah I mean but you know she I'm sorry I think the corporate underneath
4: no well they they, is... they have been and they're and they're and, and many of them and and I think that they're moving away from that it's gonna the question is gonna be how far away do they move Melinda, thank you for the call thanks for watching free Speech TV with all the recent news about online security breaches it's hard not to worry about where my data goes making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk you are being tracked online by social media sites marketing companies and your mobile and internet provider now that the republicans have destroyed net neutrality that's why i decided to take back my privacy by using expressvpn expressvpn has easy to use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer phone and tablet turning on expressvpn protection only takes one click expressvpn secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public ip address protecting yourself with expressvpn costs less than seven dollars a month protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com/tom. That's expressvpncom thom for three months free with a one-year package. visit expressvpn.com/tom to learn more. Barbara in Sun City Arizona watching Free Speech TV. Hey Barbara, what's up?
0: Hi. Um, I wanted to address everything, but I'll stick to Beto work. I think what people need to know about Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, they were young, but they had political machines behind them, especially Barack in Illinois with the Daily Chicago machine completely helping him. But Jimmy Carter did not. No, well, Jimmy Carter was an anomaly because of Watergate, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I like Beto O'Rourke. Uh, he's a southerner. He's, he could be really good. I think he needs to run for another office. He mm. needs to build a machine. I mean, I'm sorry, but it does take a village, and it takes a machine. <laughs>
4: That's a good point, Barbara. I wonder if instead of promoting him for president... Not... I'm
0: from Chicago, and my dad was a union president and knew Barry Obama back in the day.
4: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm wondering if Beto should be running for vice president instead of president.
0: Yeah, Yeah, well, I think he might be something on the ticket, but the Democrats, I like Mm -hmm. Gavin Newsom, and I think we need to be not looking at the shiny object and really look at the seasoned professionals, you know.
4: Yeah. On the other hand, what the story of Trump tells us is that people are tired of politicians. I mean, that's Michael Moore's whole pitch to Tom Hanks to run for president. Well, there's talk that Hillary's going to get into the race, too. Uh, Apparently, some of her people over the weekend uh, confirmed that she's planning on running for president. So
0: well, between her and Bernie I think they'll X each other out at some point and he wants to run as a spoiler. It's very confusing. I think yeah. some somebody with a lot of Charisma younger is going to overtake both of them. I think they just want to get their points of view out.
4: Yeah, I think so too. There's also Jeff Merkley from Oregon. Uh, He's broadly underestimated and undervalued, I think. This guy has a lot of political charisma. He has built a network, he has been fundraising for other Democrats all over the country. He's behaving like somebody who wants to run for president or vice president. I would keep an eye on him as well. But Beto, now you say he needs a political machine. I mean, you know, he was a congressman from Texas for, for four years. Running for governor, he assembled a substantial political machine down there that he might be able to use. Thanks for the call. Ted in Willow Springs, Illinois. Hey, Ted, what's up?
2: Hi, Tom. I'm trying to weigh in on my opinion about Beto O'Rourke. Mm-hmm. I don't know who the best candidate for the Democrats will be in 2020, and I don't think anyone really will for a while, but I do know for sure that Beto Beto, has done so much for the state of Texas and the Democratic parties in the state of Texas. He described Texas's problem not as a red or a blue state, but as a 50th state out of 50 in terms of voter participation. Mm -hmm. Whatever we can do, I think Beto can do a better job in taking Texas to the next level, and I would love to see him continue to make a difference there.
4: Yeah. I, this guy has a bright political future. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he took this wild risk, of giving up his congressional seat to run from the Senate and take on Ted Cruz. It damn near paid off, which it just surprised everybody. I mean, the Democratic Party hadn't originally even planned to participate in that race because they figured, you know, come on, Ted Cruz is like a money machine. He's the, the Koch brothers, one of their favorite people. It's just amazing what Beto has done. Ted, thanks for the call. Spot on. David in Denver. Hey, David, your thoughts?
5: Yes, Tom. Hi. I'm glad to uh, get in your program. And I want to talk about
2: Uh huh. To me, he's our top candidate in the field. I don't care that he lost in Texas. That loss may be our game
5: nationally. Mm-hmm. And he just can articulate the issues with shut. Chuck- such clarity. I thought the way he explained NFL players boycotting in that video that went viral mm-hmm. was perfect, and I haven't heard anybody rebut that. Yep. To, to make it a bigger criminal justice issue, hit it right on the nail. And he can raise money. He's inspiring. He captured the imagination of people across the country. I like everybody else. Someone else gets it. I'm supporting them, but yep. my choice right now would be Congressman
4: o'clock there you go this guy is a rising star whether he can pull it off whether he's even going to whether he's even interested i don't know but it's interesting the feedback that i'm getting from people like you david and thank you for the call yep is that yeah (laughs) bring it on you know it sounds like a good guy you're listening to tom hartman Igor Volsky is the founder and executive director of Guns Down America, a bolder, broader movement calling for dramatically fewer guns in America. GunsDownAmerica.org is the website. And of course, you can tweet him at GunsDownAmerica or at I-G-O-R-V-O-L-S-K-Y, Igor Volsky.
5: Uh, Igor, tell us about your organization. Well, the organization is really focused on doing two different things that I think are really way overdue uh, here in America. One is to financially drain the gun industry and the NRA. And the second is to organize Americans around bolder solutions that will actually reduce gun violence. And these are things like federal licensing for firearm owners, gun registration, gun buybacks. Because, Tom, we're in a country where, believe it or not, we now have more guns than people. Right. Uh, And if you look at all of the research out there, the, the fact of the matter is the more guns you have, the more public mass shootings, the more homicides, the more suicides, the more police shootings you have. And so, you know, I think we've reached a point where background checks aren't enough we really have to pursue policies that lead us uh, towards the future with steel guns and make those guns significantly harder to get.
4: Yeah, amen. Uh, And and in fact, it is just simple math. You can do this on a state-by-state basis or a country-by-country basis, and various research organizations have done both. Basically, the more guns you have, the more gun violence you have, period, end of discussion. And you know, in fact, in the United States, states that have the most rigid gun control laws have literally half the number of gun deaths of all kinds whether it's kids shooting each other you know accidentally or whether it's people committing suicide with guns or just naked homicides half the rate of states that uh, you know that have very lenient gun laws like texas so i mean it's just this is simple math igor i i've been i, I have a book coming out um in june of next year it's uh, titled the hidden history of guns and the second amendment and so i've been up to my eyeballs in this topic for the last year writing this book and It seems to me like some just simple, straightforward stuff that shouldn't even be controversial might go a a long way. The first is is uh, treating guns like cars. Back in the 19 aughts and the 19 teens, when cars started becoming so common uh, that they started killing people, you know, mostly by accident. Uh, we came up with, and ultimately over the next 40 years, uh, this three-part system. Number one, it's, uh, there's a, a number, the VIN number, you know, serial number that follows it from the time it's manufactured until the time it's destroyed. And every year, your ownership of that has to be renewed or asserted to the state. Number two, get you, know, you have to prove that you know how to use it, a driver's license. Uh, You should prove that you know gun safety and guns. Uh, Number three, uh, liability insurance. I think it's crazy that the the kids in Newtown, uh, you know, if they had been hit by a drunk driver, even a malicious drunk driver who wanted to kill them, Geico would have paid each one of their families a million bucks. But because they were shot with a gun, they got nothing. And 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 that's one of these kind of free market solutions, as it were, that you can sell to Republicans because then the insurance companies are evaluating the risk of people and setting the prices. Oh, you've got a domestic abuse uh, charge on your record. Uh, your insurance, instead of being thirty-five dollars a year, is going to be thirty-five hundred dollars a year, or five thousand dollars a year. Uh, what do you think? Uh,
5: first of all, I love that you have a book coming out about this in June because I have a book coming out about this in April where I talk about this very idea of requiring gun owners to have liability insurance, Um, and I write about it in just the way you describe, um, but also point out that the other um, place where the money can go for these gun owners is into survivor funds, into victim funds, uh, because as we know, The survivors of these public mass shootings, and, you know, we have the most in America, in the world, um, as you know, uh, often spend a lifetime in pain and a lifetime in medical bills. And so not only do you want to get insurers on your side in terms of figuring out how to keep um, uh, how, to, how to better ensure that guns are, are safely stored and figuring out based on claims data which is what, 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 what are best practices, um, but you also want to think about how can you use that, um, that pot of money wisely to help, but uh, to help a different kind, uh, you know, to help people who are suffering from this, really. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the other point you make, uh, which I think uh, is a good one about cars, is really, I, I think, also instructive in how we should deal with guns. Because with cars, we were of the mind that you have to make cars safer, you have to make roads safer, and that's how you save lives. But it's not enough to go to kind of individual drivers and try to change that their individual behavior. But so that is harder to do than to change the, the tools they have, right, the cars, the roads. And when it comes to guns, it's kind of shameful, I think, that lawmakers from both sides of the aisle haven't really adopted this approach. And that we're in a country where the gun industry and the products they make are almost entirely unregulated. So, you know, aspirin and teddy bears and whatever else consumer product is reviewed by, you know, the Consumer Safety Commission, for instance. The same thing is not true for guns, which is why over the last 10, 20 years, You've had gun manufacturers making weapons that are deadlier, that uh, are specifically designed to kill people quickly and efficiently. Um, and so, the, uh, if you know, 10, 20 years ago, you wouldn't die from a gunshot wound that came out of a revolver today because the weapons are so much more advanced and are based on the stuff our military uses. People die a lot faster, and of course, doctors know this firsthand. So, the idea of regulating the gun industry uh, is a really big key to solving
3: this problem.
4: Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, another point uh, that I think we should start a conversation about: if you go back and watch, you know, cop shows from the '60s, '70s, and '80s, the police all carried revolvers. They didn't yep. carry semi-automatic weapons and uh semi-automatic weapons are really weapons of war they aren't designed for sports shooting they aren't designed for hunting uh they they they're they're weapons of war whether they're pistols or whether they're hand, or whether they're rifles and and we saw this with the this uh, shooting that just happened recently <clears throat> excuse me i just sneezed um this this uh, shooting that we just saw in thousand oaks california uh the guy was carrying a handgun a semi-automatic handgun with apparently a 30 round clip and uh and maybe more than one clip And, uh, you know, I'm saying we didn't ban automatic weapons. You can still own a fully automatic Uzi, you just have to pay a $200 fee you have to submit your your fingerprints you have to go through an extremely intrusive background check and i mean you know it's but but it's there i mean there is a there's a mechanism to you know so if somebody says well i have to have my semi-automatic weapon okay cool here's here just let's we're, let's regulate semi-automatic weapons the same way we do automatic weapons what do you think yeah. of that
5: well i think that's a, that's a great idea that's something to write about in my book and When was the last time you heard of somebody using a fully automatic machine gun to commit a crime? Almost never, because, as you point out, those guns are very well regulated, and it only underscores the argument that regulation actually works, that if you put barriers between people who are able to obtain a firearm, um, you reduce gun Gun deaths of all kinds, starting of course uh, with suicides, which is, as you yeah. know, is two thirds of, of the gun deaths in America.
4: Yeah, absolutely.
5: WeNeedZeroDumps.org uh, is the petition that we're driving because you know we had uh, an election last week, as everybody knows. But our work, as far as I'm concerned, uh, is really just beginning because now is the time. Uh, as you have the NRA losing power, losing political clout. Uh, uh, they have a lot less money coming in for membership dues, they're far less influential than they've ever been, you know, tons of companies are broken from yeah. the NRA. But as that's happening, and as you have young people coming into uh, really grassroots politics through this issue, right, they've spent mm-hmm. their childhoods under their desks because of these, uh, these drills that they've had to go through, they now see the consequences Um, And the reasons for these drills, uh, they're fired up, they're ready to go. So now is the time, I think, to really push our members of Congress to go further, to go bolder, um, and to pursue the kinds of policies uh, that you and I have discussed that reduce the number of guns in circulation, that make those guns harder to get. And really, step one, I think is educating Americans about what needs to be done. And, you know, you, you you point out, and I think this point is critical, is that it's no great mystery about how, what we need to do to reduce gun violence. States that have adopted gun licensing, and there's 10 states that have gun licensing now, um, have seen dramatic drops in gun deaths. But, of course, also countries around the world that have licensing and other mechanisms that erect great barriers for gun ownership have also been successful. So we know what to do. We've got to get the lawmakers there.
4: Amen. The websites, check them out. GunsDownAmerica.org, the parent organization. We Need fewer org for the petition. Igor Volsky, the founder and executive director of Guns Down America. Keep up the great work, Igor. It's great having you on the program. Thanks so much, Tom. Great talking with you. I've never endorsed a weight loss product before, Ridgezone. Why Ridgezone? I've seen firsthand how well it worked for my wife. With the wedding coming up, Louise wanted to lose a little weight. She read about university research and how one molecule helps regulate appetite. Ridgezone is designed to boost levels of that one molecule, along with your metabolism, so you stop craving the wrong foods and you burn calories faster. Once her appetite and cravings were under control, she said losing weight was easy. She has more energy on her hikes and she looks amazing. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough and you want to lose the weight you've been struggling to lose, get non-prescription, FDA-accepted Riduzone. While supplies last, use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off, plus free shipping. Go to TryRiduzone.com. That's t r y t r y ridu r i d u z o n e dot com. Try R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. Use the promo code Tom T H O M and receive thirty percent off plus free shipping. Try That's T R Y. Try r i d u z o n e Try R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. Promo code Tom. Our book today is Fierce Enigmas: A History of the United States in South Asia by Srinath Raghavan. This is from the introduction. At around 7 o'clock in the morning of May 21, 2016, a middle-aged Pashtun man crossed the border from Iran to Pakistan. Although he was carrying a Pakistani passport bearing the name Muhammad Wali, he was detained at the border crossing for nearly two hours. When allowed through, he got into a white sedan and proceeded on an eight-hour drive to Quetta, capital of the Pakistani province of Balakistan. As the car approached the small town of Ahmad Wall, about two-thirds of the way to Quetta. Hellfire missiles from an American drone tore it apart, incinerating the driver and the passenger. The U.S. Joint Special Operations Command had assassinated Mullah Akhtar Mohammed Mansour, the leader of the Taliban. Two days later, President Barack Obama announced the killing in a press conference in Hanoi. The strike, he said, quote, removed the leader of an organization that has continued to plot against and unleash attacks on American and coalition forces to wage war against the Afghan people and align itself with extremist groups like al-Qaeda. Quote. Stating that Mansour only had rejected efforts by the Afghan government to engage him in talks, Obama expressed hope that the Taliban would, quote, quote, seize the opportunity to pursue the only real path for ending this long conflict, joining the Afghan government in a reconciliation process that leads to lasting peace and stability. End quote. Obama added that the United States would continue to, quote, work on shared objectives with Pakistan where terrorists that threaten all our nations must be denied safe haven. End quote. The Obama administration hailed the assassination of Mansoor for two reasons, primarily. First, it was part of a strategy to bring the Taliban to the negotiating table, a strategy that now seems likely to succeed, or now seemed likely to succeed. Mansoor himself had taken over as leader of the Taliban less than a year prior, after revelation that he had muzzled news of the April 2013 death of Taliban Supreme Commander Mullah Mohammed Omar. Mansoor's killing, it was assumed, would overthrow the the organization into disarray, and embolden the moderates within the Taliban to enter into talks with the Afghan government. Second, the strike would send a strong signal to Pakistan that it could no longer harbor Taliban leaders while pocketing American financial aid. Pakistan's policy of running with the hares and hunting with the hounds was well known to American policymakers. In Obama's first intelligence briefing in 2009, the director of Central Intelligence had wearily told him that the Pakistanis were a living lie. American officials believed that Pakistan's mendacious stance stemmed not just from its desire to prop up the Taliban and ensure that Afghanistan remained its strategic backyard, but also from its long-running rivalry with India over Kashmir and its fear of Indian influence in Afghanistan. Over the years, Obama realized that there were limits to how much Washington could cajole India into engaging with Pakistan, even as the latter supported anti-Indian terrorist outfits. Instead, he came to rely heavily on a covert action program, human and technical intelligence, special forces, and predator drones begun, begun under his president, predecessor, George Bush, to target terrorist leaders inside Pakistan. The assassination of Mansour, however, did not deliver the desired outcomes. Days after the strike, the Taliban leadership council in Quetta chose Malawi Hibutala Akhundzada, a religious scholar, as his successor, and they soon escalated attacks inside Afghanistan. By the time Obama left the White House in, late 20, in early 2017, more than 40% of Afghans' districts were under the Taliban's control or influenced or contested by them. With more than 11,000 civilians killed, 2016 was the most violent year in the country since 2009. The Afghan security forces, too, suffered heavy casualties that year, that year with over 6,700 dead and nearly 11,800 injured. As for the impact on Pakistan, it turned out that the United States might have grossly misjudged the dynamic between the Pakistanis and Mansoor. Former associates of Mansour, as well as the knowledgeable Afghan officials subsequently disclosed in, that in the month prior to his assassination, the Taliban leader had been at loggerheads with the Pakistani Inter-Services Agency, Our intelligence agency, the ISI, the intelligence agency known for its far reaching power and influence over the very top layers of the Pakistani government. Mansoor had apparently resisted ISI orders to target infrastructure in Afghanistan, to promote a hardline Pakistani protege as his deputy, and to advance Pakistan's particular interests in future negotiations with the Afghan government. During this period, Mansoor had conveyed to Taliban commanders under him that he was prepared to negotiate for peace. In a bid to loosen the ISI's grip on the Taliban, he was reportedly preparing to accord greater autonomy to his commanders in the field and was exploring the possibility of securing assistance from Iran to avoid relying so heavily on Pakistan. The ISI, in fact, may well have created the trail that led the Americans to Mansour. These details emerged over 14 months after Mansour's assassination. By then, the war in Afghanistan had garnered the dubious distinction of being the longest war in American history twice as long already as the Vietnam War. Despite a heavy commitment of troops and money, drones, and special forces, the United States still found it difficult to distinguish who was on which side of this tangled conflict. Barack Obama was not, of course, the first American president to grapple with the complexities of South Asia, nor were George W. Bush or his immediate predecessors. In fact, the story of U.S. covert action in the region goes all the way back to 1827, when Josiah Harlan raised the stars and stripes at the outskirts of Punjab, the book *Fierce Enigmas*. Right now on the line with us is our old buddy Wendell Potter. Wendell Potter is a former health insurance expert, or executive. He's the uh, he is now an expert on it. He is the author of *Deadly Spin* and *Nation on the Take*. His two books. His latest project is Tarbell.org, an organization that examines the impact of money in politics on millions of Americans. His, his personal website is WendellPotter.com. And you can tweet him at Wendell pot P-O-T-T. Wendell, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be back. Thank, yeah, thank you for joining us. So uh, the, here we have this uh, bizarre story that I believe it was Aetna uh, had a, a doctor who was signing off on all these refusals to pay for medical services, and uh, one guy who, who died as a consequence of this, apparently, um, uh, his family is suing, and it uh, turns out that uh, the doctor wasn't even signing the forms. What the hell's going on here?
2: Well, yeah, it's a, it's a good thing that, that there is litigation. And you can find out things under oath that uh, these insurance companies would never own up to. Uh, and it's not probably not unusual in the insurance business for a medical director to allow others to sign off on uh, the denial of coverage for needed care. Uh, but they tell, they being the insurance companies, tell their customers, certainly their employer customers, that no one other than a medical doctor uh, can sign off on a denial of, uh, of, of care. Uh, that just, Even if that is true, though, uh, it doesn't assure you that you'll be able to get the care that you need. But in this particular case, uh, that doctor, under oath, uh, admitted that um, uh, many times, there would be a, a denial or request for coverage that would come uh before his before his office but he would have someone else handle it and put his name to it.
4: Right, and he wasn't even reading the patients records. They were they weren't exactly. they weren't people to him. They were uh, this was paperwork that could be signed in a, in exchange for a large paycheck essentially.
2: Exactly right. That's exactly what was happening. And these are uh, these people are very well paid. And I said Uh, often in interviews that I've done about my days at Cigna, and in particular about one case that that was kind of the final straw for me, in which a medical director at Cigna had denied, uh, had said he would not approve a request for coverage of a liver transplant of a 17-year-old girl in California. Mm. And uh, he was 2,500 miles away and had never obviously laid eyes on Madeline Sarkeesian, but he just felt that based on some papers that he had seen uh, he didn't think it was medically appropriate and uh, uh, unfortunately natalie died a few days later wow
4: wow that's amazing and and that that pushed you over the top um I, it,
2: that was what pushed me over the top that's
4: exactly right yeah. i couldn't
2: i couldn't in good conscience uh, keep doing the job that i was doing I, I,
4: I understand that uh, Stephen J. Hemsley, the CEO of United Healthcare, has taken over a billion dollars in compensation from that company in uh, both cash and stock, and that there's over a hundred executives there who are being paid more than a million dollars each. Um, are those those numbers comport with reality? And if so, where's all this money
2: coming from that these guys are paying themselves? It comes out of your pocket and mine if you have uh, private insurance, and many of most of us do, at least uh, those of us who are younger than 64. And that's exactly what is going on. Uh, One of the days I I dreaded most, Tom, when I was in the industry was handling calls from reporters when we announced uh, executive compensation. You have to do that. At least you have to disclose the five most highly compensated Uh, employees of your company if you're publicly traded uh, to the SEC and filing so that your shareholders can know about it. But it doesn't surprise me a bit that there are 100 at at United and maybe some of these other uh, companies. And it's not just the executives you probably have heard about and know about and the the ones that are are in the C-suite like the chief financial officer or the chief uh, uh, medical officer or uh, technology officer. Often people who are in sales and marketing at these companies are among the most highly compensated employees in an insurance company yeah, i know that for a fact
4: because they're making it happen they're out there i mean they're, they're, making they're, they're bringing the money in yeah right. i get that and then and then the other people just keep the money by way of denying de- denying right. coverage to people um right. i i i saw an article a couple of days ago that and then and then immediately the next day i saw an ad on tv um, that I think was for United Healthcare, uh, but the, the story was that Medicare Advantage, which is privatized Medicare, um, right. and the the Medicare Advantage now is able to not only offer dental and vision, which is not part of normal Medicare, but also will support now in-home services. You know, having somebody come in and install a Uh, a bar in your in your bathtub so that you can get in and out of the bathtub without falling Uh, having a home health care nurse provide long-term treatment uh, in in homes Uh, it seems like a great thing I mean these these should be part of regular medicare Um, how do the insurance companies offer more than medicare does for uh, basically you know roughly the same price I mean this is this is how this is a very large part of the profits of United Healthcare and right. uh, and at uh, the AARP. Uh, right. Is it that the government is uh, are we, are we double paying? If I you know if somebody mm-hmm. has Medicare Advantage, they're paying a premium to the health insurance company and they're getting benefits from the health insurance company. But is Medicare also compensating the health insurance company?
2: No, absolutely. Um, in fact, it's been shown many times over the years that the federal government through the Medicare program, uh, because the Medicare Advantage program exists that it is overpaying these private insurance companies a lot of money uh, to participate in this program. It started largely uh, during the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, uh, as one of the the efforts of trying to privatize uh, the Medicare program. And Over time, it's largely been working because you've got about a third of Medicare enrollees now enrolled in these kinds of plans. Uh, The companies advertise, I mentioned earlier, marketing, uh, but they spend enormous sums of money trying to get seniors uh, who are Medicare eligible to sign up. For their Medicare Advantage plans, I've been every if you're if you're uh, older if you're Medicare eligible, undoubtedly you're getting a lot of uh, pieces in the mail from insurance companies, and you're seeing it on TV, and that's what's happening. They they are they have become cash cows because of these overpayments and because of other things that these companies are doing that they don't tell you about. Um, for one thing, a lot of these these health plans have what's referred to as narrow or skinny networks, and oftentimes. Uh, You might go to a doctor and your doctor is not in that network. You don't know about it. Or you might get sick when you're traveling and you won't get any coverage because you're in one of these plans. So there are some really big downsides uh, to these plans, but you don't see that in advertising material.
4: Right. So so if you have a Medicare Advantage program and you actually get sick, you might end up getting really badly screwed by the insurance company because Medicare Advantage is not Medicare. It's private health insurance that, that, uh,
2: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, there's, a, there's been a trend for some time for people who uh, are in Medicare Advantage plans when they get really, really sick, and especially toward the end of their lives. the care is just being uh, – not, they're not, not getting access to the care that they need. So many of them switch back to traditional Medicare, which, of course, is what the, the Medicare Advantage companies like because they're no longer having to pay for the care uh, the traditional right. Medicare program is at that stage of their lives.
4: Yeah. It's the, this is all just amazing stuff. Um, you're doing great work, Wendell, and, and I hope Tarbell is going well. Tarbell's going well, and Tom, I just started the Potter Report, a podcast, so hope everyone will check out the Potter Report. Okay, cool. Check out and your local podcast supplier, right? You know, iTunes right. and all iTunes, that kind of stuff.
2: Spotify, everybody. Yep, okay,
4: the Potter Report. You got it. WendellPotter.com and Tarbell.org. Thanks so much, Wendell. Thank you, Tom. And Wendell's books, Deadly Spin and Nation on the Take. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead. And it actually reads your brainwaves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears as the sounds of weather and as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder. And as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool. And meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know, helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now. And I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10 book contract right now, and I'm writing so much every single day. I used to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, I got to do this. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at Choose Muse, M-U-S-E, ChooseMuse.com, and if you order Using the code TOM, T H O M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. ChooseMuse.com. So let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Ellen Ratner's new book, Loving What You Do. And our, our dear friend, Ellen Ratner, on the line with us. Hey, Ellen.
3: Well, that's right. Bob Ney is in India right now. So uh, is, I'm filling in. Is he
4: meditating with the Dalai Lama again?
3: Well, you know, he has a place up near the Dalai Lama in Dharmasala. Wow. So I don't know whether he meditates with him or not, but he certainly knows all the people up there.
4: Yeah, that's, that's an amazing story. Bob's story is such an amazing story. So what's in the yeah, news?
3: Well, okay. So Stormy Daniels and Karen McDonald were paid off. And actually, the National Enquirer paid uh, $150,000 and then didn't run the story. Well, what's really fascinating about this is that the Wall Street Journal is running this story. Yeah. Now, the Wall Street Journal is not known for its left-wing views, and when they're running the story, you know it's true. Yeah,
4: absolutely. And by the way, if this was done if this was done in order to keep it out of a political campaign, that's a major violation of federal campaign finance laws. I mean, that's a you go to prison violation.
3: You do go to prison violation, and the fact is is that there's a question, a constitutional question, as to whether you're allowed to pardon yourself. Yeah. Right?
4: Yeah, absolutely.
3: <laughs> I think we might see that come to pass, whether it, uh, it comes that up That a
4: constitutional question. That would be interesting. Now, the, um, the court so you would know end up ruling that on In that.
3: the Arizona election, it was just called, just a few minutes ago, for the Democrat, and mm-hmm. that means Martha McSally did not win.
4: Right. Instead, it's uh, uh, Kristen Cinema. Th- cinema is her name?
3: Yeah. That's right. Cinema. It's pronounced like the cinema. That's yeah. right. Um, I mean, she's no joy either, but she's a better joy than Martha McSally, for sure. Okay. All right. I mean, she's not lefty like I am, but you yeah. know, she's at least a Democrat. Yep. What Amen. Can you say? Um, now, also, what's very interesting is that there is a Florida recount. However, we do know that uh, it is between Bill Nelson and, of course, the current governor. Uh, And what we do know is the current governor has filed, Rick Scott, he has filed several suits to stop what he calls illegal ballots and and ballots that he considers not regular, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I don't know what's going to happen with the courts, but I do know that that's ridiculous.
4: Well, a one of those suits got knocked down just just a few minutes ago, and okay. and uh, but not all of them. And B, uh, Donald Trump has tweeted that he doesn't think that the votes of overseas military should be should be counted in Florida. Uh, he doesn't put it quite in those terms. He says that you know we should just take whatever the vote was on election day and go with it because right. of course that's
5: exactly you know, what he said. But
4: but the and law says that they that, that if you're foreign if you're overseas military. Uh, There's a 10-day grace period. If your ballot arrives before the 16th of November, which is still what four days away, uh, if your ballot arrives before the 16th of November, it has to be opened and counted and added to the total. And I'm guessing that a lot of overseas military have are are just like over it with Donald Trump.
3: Well, you know, it'd be interesting to know to speak to some of them. I certainly know that. A lot of military people choose not to vote because they don't believe they should vote uh, for the commander in chief, whoever the commander in chief is. However, we do know that you can go to the embassy, the military gives out ballots, et cetera, and you can request a ballot and you can vote.
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and Trump does not want those votes counted, and apparently neither does Rick Scott, and and, uh, and, and nor does Ron San- Ron DeSantis. It's going to get real interesting, Ellen.
3: Uh, Florida is going to be very interesting. And what's going to be very interesting is right now it's sort of a purple state. You don't know which way it's going to go. However, they enfranchised by a vote, between a million and a million and a half people who were felons. And now they're going to vote and what's going to happen the next election florida is not going to be a purple state it will be a blue state
4: right and there's also you know i, I think it's over a million refugees from from uh, the, the the hurricane that struck puerto rico and uh, you know, uh, and they're met,
3: American citizens.
4: They are American citizens, and many of them had had registered to vote in Florida, but many of them did not. And if they stay in Florida another two years, they I'm, I'm guessing that you're going to see really high levels of voter registration. Uh, you know, and, and they will have established residency, so they'll have you know standing to vote down there. So anyhow, Absolutely. what else is going on?
3: Okay, so there's a lot going on. First of all, Ellis Island closed in 1954 on today's date. Wow. Uh, and it was actually, they used it to send back people, if you can believe it or not, after that date. But 40% of Americans can trace their heritage back to Ellis Island.
4: Wow, yeah, I'm one of them, at least on uh, my father's I am side. Yeah, amazing.
3: Yes, okay. So now there's a question about whether the president is telling the truth or knows the truth about military bases in North Korea. It looks like there are 16 bases that were not declared, that were gotten to us by satellite. Now, we also know our U-2 flights fly over there. But we do know that satellite pictures have shown that there have been uh, these, uh, these particular uh, military bases that are manufacturing missiles.
4: Wow. Wow.
3: Sixteen, not one, not two, but
4: 16, 16 missile factories and Donald Trump. And I, I noticed that the uh, that uh, uh, Pompeo's last meeting with, with uh, Kim's people in North Korea got called off. Is this why?
3: Well, we don't know why it got called off. And, of course, we're not being told. But we do know that the president gets intelligence. So if the president gets this as intelligence, then what is about? About what's going on with that, right? Yeah.
4: Well, I think I think nowadays, if they want intelligence to get to the president, they they try to get somebody on Fox News to talk about it because that's where yeah. he's getting most of his intelligence. Well,
3: he does get an intelligence report every day.
4: Yeah, I didn't think he was reading them, but or listening to them. I guess he, they started.
3: Well, he may not listen to them, but he gets
4: them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Ellen ratner would talk media news and the uh, the author of Loving What You Do. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you. Great talking with you. Hey, thanks so much for your support for the Tom Hartman program. We deliver our program, of course, to commercial stations, which is how we pay our bills uh, through the revenue from running advertising. And you can learn more about those at our website at TomHartman.com. But we also share our program with non-commercial outlets from free speech TV to Pacifica stations all over the country. And because with the Pacifica radio stations, there's basically no revenue coming in, the way that we support our nonprofit outreach is in large part, through Patreon. And, you know, over at Patreon, people who support our program at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Um, people who support our program there get, you know, special little clips and there's a few other goodies, uh, behind the scenes kind of stuff. But that's principally, if you want to support the Tom Hartman program, um, that's the way to do it, is to get over to patreon.com slash Tom Hartman and check out what we're doing and support our program. Thank you. Tom Harbin here with you. The face of climate change is devastating California right now, the terrifying science behind this. A lot of this has to do with the, uh, the destruction of the jet stream, the increasing weakening of the jet stream, which is caused by the Arctic warming. And the Arctic is now six degrees warmer than it should be, six degrees Celsius, it's nine degrees Fahrenheit, warmer than it should be right? The rest of the planet on average is is a little over one degree warmer Celsius than it should be. And we've already seen, we're already right now seeing sea level rises. We're seeing massive, you know, acidification of the ocean. We're seeing dying off, massive die-offs happening all over. But when the jet stream collapses, what happens is you get, you know, either wet weather or dry weather, depending on, you know, where you are, that, Instead of moving through, so it rains one day and then it's sunny the next day, and then it rains one day and it's sunny. Instead of moving through, it just sits there because the jet stream is not moving the way it's supposed to. A great piece over at Wired.com titled, The Terrifying Science Behind California's Massive Campfire. It's real, it's very real. So, a lot going on here. A couple of other stories that are just fascinating. Farouz Dumas, who is a humorist and writer, Uh, published a piece called Why I Dread Returning to an American Public School in the New York Times. And just listen to this. Our daughter's elementary school, which she graduated from a few years ago, offered a rich curriculum from math and science to arts and languages. After school, in addition to the more traditional offerings of chess, theater, and computers, she could take circus lessons where children learn to juggle, walk on a tightrope, and ride a unicycle. Since her school didn't have a pool, students were bused every week to a nearby sports club for swim lessons at no extra charge. The school also offered a week-long enrichment program that varied year to year. Each one one year, students spent five days visiting sports clubs, each day being introduced by experts to sports such as fencing, ice hockey, and volleyball. Once a real circus came to her school for a week and trained the students, who then put out a performance. We did have to contribute $25 a student for that, since constructing an actual circus tent was costly. We also paid for extras like trips to museums, about $4 each, and $250 for a week-long class trip to Austria intended to foster independence. They went without their parents. A highlight was that each child did a short walk alone at night in a field. But that's it. On the few occasions when the school organizing fundraising efforts, the recipients were in other countries. She's describing a German public school. This is in Munich, in Munich, Germany. And I, Louise and I had the same experience. All three of our kids, or actually the youngest was not school age. She was four when we lived in Germany. But our two older children both went to the German public schools. And they were just extraordinary. So why do our schools suck? Our schools suck because, in part, they're paid for with property taxes. And this was a way that was put into place back in the day, particularly in the South, to keep poor schools and black schools underfunded, underperforming so that uh, the people who attended those schools would find barriers to the larger economy we're still suffering from it minority communities are still suffering from it and it was explicit it was done explicitly it was done for that reason right for the for the reason of disenfranchising people and we need to stop paying for our schools the property tax this is nuts and we need to start paying for our schools with some you know some sort of a good national fund it's just crazy that the school that your child attends is going to be good or bad depending on how wealthy the local community is. This is one of the most rigid and pernicious and evil ways that we use right now to perpetuate class rigidity, essentially, to prevent people from moving up economically, socially, politically, in terms of power. It's a way to keep people down. And it was intended to be a way to keep people down. And it was intended to be a way to add extra benefits to the lives of school children who came from wealthy families and wealthy communities. It was intended that way. It wasn't some accident. This is why it was set up. And we should be looking at this going, okay, this this is crazy right? All over the world, they've got great school systems that don't vary from town to town in terms of the quality of the school, because they're standardized across the country. We could do this, or we could standardize them at the very least across state levels and, you know, fund them with state taxes. But this whole property tax funding local schools thing has got to go. This is just so wrong. Bob in uh, Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Hey, Bob, what's up?
2: Well, I had a little... uh A little shout out for the possible presidential candidate. Okay.
0: You know the old saying, anything you can do, we can do better? Right. Anything Trump
2: can do, we can do better. Ah.
4: Okay. So that's... There you go. You have a good one, Bob. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot, Bob. Good talking to you. Uh, Bob Intalequa never never fails to uh, inform us all. I wanna just give you a tip, a story that's really worth reading. I'm, I'm gonna talk about it a little more as the week goes on, but it's by Tim Wu, a professor, uh, law professor who specializes in antitrust law. And he says, be afraid of economic bigness, be very afraid. That's the title of the article in, the, in today's New York Times. He says, in the 1930s, economic bigness, in other words, big corporations, contributed to the rise of fascism. Alarmingly, we are experimenting again with a monopolized economy. This is a serious danger, which, as I said, I'll be talking about tomorrow. And also, I reported earlier, but it bears repeating, Justin Trudeau has confirmed that Canadian intelligence did receive the audio tape from Turkish intelligence of Mr. Khashoggi being tortured and murdered in the Saudi consulate in Ankara, in Turkey. This is pretty amazing stuff. So thanks so much for being with us today. Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. Yeah, we all got out there and voted. We still have a lot of work to do. Two years is going to come really fast. So get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit
2: TomHartman.com.